Oh, hello, hello, hello. Um, this is uh, Barry, and this is your Worcester Talking magazine for September. Um, we've got some interesting articles for you today. Um, one about bad luck, and I can say this, that it certainly hit us here because we recorded about 15 minutes of this and it didn't record properly, so we're doing this all again. Oh, no, you're lucky. <laughs> anyway, I'd like to thank... Um, uh, who we have today with Mike. Hello. And Kate. Hello. And Alex on the machine, <laughs> <laughs> who volunteered to come today because John couldn't do it. And I'll bet he's really glad now <laughs> after all the trouble he's been put through. And I'd like to thank everybody else that um, does wonderful jobs uh, getting the um, the sticks ready for sending out to all you wonderful listeners. And um, I hope you enjoy this um particular magazine uh what else can we say that do so right we're going to start off with the one we started off when we first recorded or tried to record this about you should be so lucky and hopefully with a bit of luck we are being lucky this time and it is recording a survey has found that 47 percent of britons class themselves as superstitious with choosing a lucky number being the most common lucky omen. According uh, to the survey by Mecca Bingo, the number seven was the most common lucky number, with almost one-third, 32%, of superstitious people saying they have a favourite digit. Meanwhile, picking up a penny and crossing fingers were among the other most common superstitions. Right, we've got some some more um, superstitions to bring good luck. Right, here we go. Having a lucky number, 32% of people thought that. Finding a penny and picking it up, 32% thought that. Crossing fingers, everyone knows that one. Seeing a shooting star... Yeah, okay. Having a good luck charm. I've asked when I I, I said this a few minutes ago. <laughs> I asked Michael and Kate if they had good luck charms. And do you have good luck charms? I have a um, charm. No, I have a lucky number. Uh, my lucky number is nine. I regard it as nine. I was born on the ninth. Uh, maybe that's got something to do with it. Uh, but lots of other good things have happened to me and uh, good exam results and things like that have been had nines in them so I've been quite uh, I've, got, I've sort of got a bit of a thing about it so yeah, Michael um, no charm well well, that's been said of me anyway um, <laughs> but for lucky number I go for eight um, which is favoured by the Chinese and a quarter of the world's population can't be wrong can they oh, uh-huh. oh no, 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 no 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 that's absolutely right <laughs> yeah okay um Having a good luck charm, we've done that. Finding a white feather. Um, I don't think I've ever found a white feather. Although there's one hanging off a cobweb on my car at the moment. (laughs) So I'm driving around with one. Um, I think uh, white feathers, I thought, um, during the First World War, certainly, and even the Second World War, uh, people used to give white feathers to people not in uniform. Uh, for cowardice and uh, the saying that they should enlist. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought that was particularly good luck. Lots Sorry. of people feel now if they find a white feather or one just floats down in front of them, that that is, if they've had a, a bereavement, uh, they find that they feel that that is the person just telling them the right way to go with whatever event 
they're pursuing in at that moment. So yeah. that's that's another thought behind it, isn't you, it? You, uh, yeah. In saying that, you do get some funny things happen. Um, that you superstition sort of, you know, you feel hello. Oh, this happened to me when my father died. I, I, I'd um, gone round the night he died to help my mother. And I slept in what was really my old bedroom with a lot of the old furniture in. And um, there was a wardrobe there and it had a flap that, that pulled down um, to open. And this flap, I don't think it had been open for years and years and years because nobody really used that bedroom. And the night he died, this flap went bang and it opened up with no real reason at all. And, for no, and there was absolutely no reason for it to do it it just did it and i've always looked upon that as a sort of signal mm. i hope it meant good and not bad frankly mm. but anyway uh we we're doing superstitions to bring good luck seeing a rainbow i think everyone likes seeing a rainbow don't they you know um getting pooed on by a bird I, well you know if that's supposed <laughs> to be good luck <laughs> i'll go with that, that one uh, actually, uh, it did happen to my mother once that she was buying, um, uh, when we were on holiday, um, we were... Uh, Let's say an ice cream, please. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> we were on a promenade and they were selling tickets. In, in the old days, they sold tickets for winning a car. And uh, she just bought a ticket for this and um, a bird pooed on her shoulder. And everyone wanted to know what number she'd picked or something. I can't remember. Yeah. But everyone thought she was going to be definitely going to win this thing. Right, the last two, wishing on a wishbone. And, uh, well, we use wishbones, don't we? We do um, mm. when you get a, a, a chicken or a turkey or something like that. You do that. And certain times, such as 11-11. Well, I didn't think that was particularly lucky in <laughs> America, did Anyway, superstitions, this is superstitions to avoid bad luck. Don't smash a mirror. Don't walk under ladders. Opening umbrella indoors. Putting new shoes on a table. Forgetting to knock on wood. Um, I think well, we, we did say earlier that this is touching wood, isn't it? Or knocking on wood is the same sort of thing, isn't it, mm -hmm. I suppose? Uh, not saluting a magpie. Now, we did talk about this, didn't we? <laughs> saluting a magpie. And you said the Queen um, had a, a, a mm. little story about this. What was that? Yes, she did. She said uh, not to worry about finding another magpie because the idea was that if you saw two, then that was OK. But she said, no, if you greet the mag magpie uh, politely and say, uh, tell the magpie the date and the day of the week, then the magpie is, you know, of the lesser knowledge than you are. And uh, it usually, that usually <coughs> apparently worked for the Queen. <laughs> I don't know. As long as the magpie bowed. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, passing on the stairs, I think everyone knows that one. It's, it's okay in the house, I think, because most household staircases are rather too narrow to do it anyway. But um, out and about, I think it's non impossible not to pass people on the stairs in busy thoroughfares. Not throwing spilt salt over the shoulder. Well, I mean, I must admit I've done it. Not every time I've spilt salt, but um, I have actually done it. Kate? Mm, yeah, yeah, I have. Michael? Yeah, it's it, it's a habit, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's just one of those silly things that you do, isn't it? Um, and the last two is spotting a black cat crossing a path. 
Well, Kate's okay there because she's got a white cat, so she's definitely, <laughs> definitely mm. okay. And walking over... Now, I've never heard of this one. This is a definite never heard of. Walking over three drains. Um, no. No, never. No, never it's not very often <laughs> you see three drains that's um, uh, next to each other, really. <laughs> it's not common. Anyway, um, Michael has um, some more information about the number 13. Michael. Yes. Well, there's a word for everything, and the unreasoned fear of the number 13 is termed triskaidekaphobia. Due to this fear, some tall buildings have resorted to skipping the 13th floor, either by numbering it 14, even though it's really the 13th, or by designating the floor as 12A or something similar. Similarly, some streets don't contain the number 13. The 13th of the month is likewise ominous, particularly when it falls on a Friday. Here are some other reasons. There were 13 people at the Last Supper. It's said that Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, was the 13th man to take his place at the table. Similarly, there's a Norse legend that has 12 gods sitting down to a banquet when the 13th uninvited god, Loki, shows up. Loki killed one of the other gods, which leads to the events that results in Ragnarok, the death of a bunch of gods, a slew of natural disasters and the eradication of everything on Earth, save for two human survivors. There's a lot more to that story, but I think you get the general idea. Let's go back to Christianity for a moment. Many Christians believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday, Good Friday and all that. Researchers, however, believe that it wasn't a case of Friday the 13th law at all. It's possibly something like Friday, April the 3rd, 33 AD. But that doesn't mean that Friday the 13th is off the hook. Many Christians also believe that the Cain and Abel debacle took place on the 13th. Traditionally, there used to be 13 steps leading up to the gallows. There's also a legend that the hangman's noose traditionally contained 13 turns. Although it's more actually um, something like 8. Apollo 13, the only unsuccessful moon mission. Makes you think... Moon landings are fake. Or did they do it just so they can make a movie with Tom Hanks, Kevin Bacon and Bill Paxton, etc.? There's a mass arrest and execution of the Knights Templar. Again, Friday, October 13th, 1307. Although a coven is now considered to be any group of witches, it once was believed that a coven was made up of exactly 13 members. Modern-day witches, and there are some, have reclaimed the number 13 as, lucky as, as a lucky and significant number. But this may be similar to witches reclaiming other previous negative terms and ideas associated with witchcraft, such as the black cats, brooms, and even the term witch itself. There's an old superstition that says if you have 13 letters in your name, and I can hear you all checking now, you're bound to have the devil's luck. Silly, yes, but... Slightly more convincing when you consider that Charles Manson, Jack the Ripper, plus many other less well-known, very nasty people, also had 13 letters in their names. Here's one that all parents know about. Kids officially become teenagers at the age of 13. That's scary enough without qualification. In neurology, 
the number 12 is considered to be the representation of perfection and completion. So it stands to reason then that trying to improve upon perfection by adding a digit is a very bad idea indeed. Just plain greed and it will be rewarded with bad luck. In the late 1800s, in the USA, where else, there was a group called the 13 Club. Their purpose was to debunk the legend that sitting 13 people at a table would result in the death of one of them in the year to follow. They met on the 13th of the month and had to dinner 13 people at the table. And to make matters worse, they purposely spilt salt on the table and didn't throw it over their shoulders. The horror. They also fined members who showed up late. 13 cents, of course. Members of the club included five US presidents, Benjamin Harrison, Grover Cleveland, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt and Chester A. Arthur. I'm not sure it's worth noting that two of these presidents were shot, one fatally of course, but I'll mention it anyway. And if you're keeping track, Chester A. Arthur only became president because he was the vice president when Garfield was assassinated. Right, um, thanks Michael for that, and I hope it brings us all good luck. And apparently, the second time round of doing this opening, it recorded, so we're okay. <laughs> My fingers were crossed throughout. Oh, luck, luck mm. was on our side. Yes, yeah, luck was on our side. Oh, um, right, we're going to... Uh, Kate, um, next um, story is about W.H. Auden. But prior to that, I want to, I want to read you one of his poems... Uh, this was um, spoken by John Hanna in the film Three Weddings and a Funeral at his friend's death and it's called Stop All the Clocks. Stop all the clocks, cut off the telephone, prevent the dogs from barking with a juicy bone, silence the pianos and with a muffled drum Bring out the coffin, let the mourners come. Let aeroplanes circle, moaning overhead, scribbling on the sky the message, he is dead. Put the crepe bows round the white necks of public doves. Let the traffic policemen wear black cotton gloves. He was my north, my south, my east and west. My working week and my Sunday rest. My noon, my midnight, my talk, my song. I thought that love would last forever. I was very wrong. The stars are not wanted now. Put out, everyone. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to me that's any good. Kate. Oh, that's very, very moving, very sad. It is yeah. well known, of course. And, yeah. um, and this is about Auden, a little bit about Auden, who um, actually attended the Downs School in Malvern. Three years spent in the shadow of the Malvern Hills were to form one of the happiest and most productive periods in the life of the great 20th century English poet W.H. Auden. 
As a young man, he taught at the Downs Preparatory School, Colwall, from 1932 to 1935, and found in this picturesque haven a mellow world where poetry opened like a bud. It is perhaps worth comparing the lives of Auden and William Joyce because there are several interesting parallels together with some extremely sharp contrasts. Auden was a contemporary of Joyce's, being born within a few months of him, at York rather than in New York, and he also went into teaching as his first career after university. Auden too was a lover of all things Germanic from an early age and spent several periods living in Germany and Austria. Throughout the Second World War, Auden's poems and books were largely ostracised by the British public in contempt for his decision to leave these shores and live during the war in America. He was still in his thirties and could well have faced call-up into the forces if he had remained in his native country. The poet, like Joyce, was also to embrace American citizenship, but politically Auden was a far cry from the fanatical fascism of Joyce. He was a member of the Communist Party for several years, and unlike the rampant anti-Semitism of Joyce, he liked Jews and sympathised with their plight. So much so he went through a marriage of convenience with the young German Jewess in 1935, solely to rescue her from growing Nazi persecution. The couple were never to live together, even for a day, because unlike twice-married Joyce, Auden was homosexual. Winston Hugh Auden, who is listed in biographical dictionaries as a poet, dramatist and critic, was born at York in 1907, the son of a family doctor. It was on family holidays in Austria as a boy that he felt developed his liking for things Germanic. His education was at boarding school in Norfolk and then from 1925 at Christchurch College, Oxford, where his fellow university undergraduates were young poets Betjeman, Day-Lewis and Spender. After Oxford, he spent 18 months living in Germany, mainly in Berlin, before returning to take up teaching. He joined the staff at the Downs School near Malvern in 1932 to teach English and French, and occasionally arithmetic and biology. He was given the nickname Uncle Wiz by the pupils and started a school, a school magazine called The Badger in order to encourage pupils to write poetry. According to one of his biographers, Dorothy J. Farnan, he smoked cigarettes continuously, bit his nails and puzzled everyone with his capricious temperament, now bright, now sullen, alternately. This characteristic was to be seen with the sharply contrasting moods of his writings throughout his life. It was in 1935, while at the Downs, that Auden agreed to a proxy marriage to German Jewess Erika Mann to get her a British passport and save her from Nazi oppression. Worcester past Mayor Jeff Carpenter, in his book Wartime Worcestershire, writes, So the story goes, the good lady Erika stepped off the train at Great Malvern Station, went up to the nearest man and asked, Excuse me, are you my husband? Auden and Erica married at Ledbury Register Office on June the 15th, 1935, but they were to see very little of one another again. It was only late during his years in America that Auden visited her and her family, then living in the USA. He jokingly referred to her as my wife, though they were never or more than polite ter- on more than polite terms. 
When he left the Downs School at the end of 1935, Auden joined a documentary film company and in 1937 went as an observer to the Spanish Civil War. Then came Auden's controversial exile to America throughout the Second World War and also the start of his affair and long partnership with the young writer Chester Kalman. Auden became a US citizen in 1946 and won the coveted Pulitzer Prize in 1948 for his long poem The Age of Anxiety. With Kalman, he also wrote the libretto for Stravinsky's opera The Rake's Progress. After the war, Auden and his works were gradually accepted in Britain and from 1956 to 1961 he was Professor of Poetry at Oxford. He also took a great interest in the rebuilding of Germany's war-ravaged cities and spent his final years living in Austria. He died of a heart attack in Vienna in 1973 at the age of 66. Thank you. And uh, another poem um, before we go to Michael for a story he's brought along um, for us. Uh, this is called The More Loving One. Looking up at the stars, I know quite well that for all they care, I can go to hell. But on earth, indifference is the least we have to dread from man or beast. How should we like it where stars to burn with passion for us we could not return? If equal affections cannot be, let the more loving one be me. Admire, as I think I am, of stars that do not give a damn. I cannot now see them to say I miss one terribly all day. Were the stars to disappear or die, I should learn to look at an empty sky and feel its total dark sublime, though this may take a little time. Completely different to the other one. Mm, Absolutely yes. different. Right, Michael, your story, sir. Yeah, uh, well, this is a, an article which took my eye uh, from the oldie um, this week and having retired I wasn't quite sure what the phrase quiet quitting meant Richard Godwin explains quiet quiet quitting and it is hard to say is when your mind checks out of a job while your body still goes through the motions it's not to be confused with slacking you're sitting at your terminal you're hitting your quotas you're doing everything your contract demands of you but you are doing nothing more. No answering emails at weekends, no fetching the boss's dry cleaning, and probably no chop chipping in for Colin the Caterpillar cake when it's Kelly's birthday. The quiet quitter would prefer not to. It comes from a phrase called Tang Ping, literally lying flat. The phrase surfaced on Chinese social media as younger workers began to question the value of 100-hour weeks that were part of the Chinese national productivity targets. A manifesto for lying down was posted on the discussion site Dubao. It listed accepting one's own shortcomings, daring not to equate money with happiness, and refusing to worry too much about key questions of the movement. The post has since been censored. One dreads to think what happened to its author. Slacking is the new hustling. Giving it your 78% is the new giving it 110%. Bringing down capitalism is the new launching a startup. 
People who used to boast about how much they could get done are now boasting about how little they can get away with. Quiet quitting is also part of a post-pandemic re-evaluation of all aspects of work culture. The lockdowns gave millions of people the time and space to reassess what they wanted from life. Then again, note how meek the protest is. Quiet quitting is a far cry from smashing up spinning jennies or even a communal garden strike. It's a measure of how imbalanced things have become when just doing your job is seen as tantamount to giving up. Okay, that was great. Now, Kate, I believe you have something you brought along for us to hear. I have. In between reading a little bit more, something a little bit more serious, I thought it might be uh, quite funny to read a little little uh, story I've, I've found. Um, this is just a funny story, and I thought you might in- enjoy it. An old couple were lying in bed reading late one night. Sheila turned to Bob and said softly, When we were courting, you told me that you were my knight in shining armour and would slay dragons to protect me. Do you still feel like that? Absolutely, my darling. I would risk any danger to protect you, replied Bob. And you always said that you would climb the highest mountain, sail uncharted oceans and do anything for me. Would you still do anything for me? Yes, of course, my dear. I would do anything for you. Anything? Anything. Well, be my hero. Learn where the tea bags are and make me a cup of tea. Yeah. <laughs> have you got anything else, now? I have. Oh, um, I have been reading about Nye Bevan. Uh, I'm sure uh, most of you know and have heard of Nye Bevan. Um, and uh, I've got a little bit about him, just a general summary of his life, and then a poem that I've written um, because I worked for the NHS for a number of years, so I thought I would uh, just put that in as well, mm. if you can tolerate it. Uh, right, Narin Nye Bevan um, was born on the 15th of November 1897 and died on the 6th of July 1960. He was a Welsh Labour Party politician, noted for tenure as Minister of Health in Clement Attlee's government, in which he spearheaded the creation of the British National Health Service. He is also known for his wider contribution to the founding of the British Welfare State. He was first elected as MP to Ebervale in 1929 and used his parliamentary platform to make a number of influential criticisms of Winston Churchill and his government during the Second World War. Before entering Parliament, Bevan was involved in miners' union politics and was a leading figure in the 1926 general strike. Bevan is widely regarded as one of the most influential left-wing politicians in British history. Raised in Monmouthshire by a Welsh working-class family, he was the son of a coal miner and left school at 14. Bevan first worked in a miners, as a miner during his teens, where he became involved in local, local miners' union politics. He was elected head of his miners' lodge when aged 19, where he frequently rallied against management. He joined the Labour Party and attended Central Labour College in London. On his return to South Wales, he struggled to find work, remaining unemployed for nearly three years before gaining employment as a union official, which led to him becoming a leading figure in the 1926 general strike. In 1928, Bevan won a seat on Monmouthshire County Council and was elected as the MP for Edward Vale the following year. In Parliament, he became a local critic of numerous other politicians from all parties, particularly Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George. 
After the war, Bevan was chosen as the Minister of Health in Clement Attlee's new Labour government, becoming the youngest member of the Cabinet at 47, with his remit also including housing. Inspired by the Tredegar Medical Aid Society in his hometown in South Wales, Bevan led the campaign for a national health service to provide medical care free at point of need across the UK, regardless of wealth. Despite resistance from opposition parties and the British Medical Association, the National Health Service Act 1946 was passed and launched in 1948, nationalising more than 2,500 hospitals within the United Kingdom. And that's just a, a short piece about him. There is more, obviously, but uh, here's my little poem <laughs> that I wrote about the NHS. There's a lot of negativity in the press about the NHS. I don't agree, so I have to protest. There are a lot of cases that are a success. With the right support, people's lives progress. When they'd initially been a worrying mess. I'm a bit biased, though, I have to confess, as I formerly worked for the NHS. There were the odd days when I felt the stress of it all and wanted to send out an SOS. But on the whole, I felt truly blessed to be working with staff who gave their best. We worked long hours without much rest, with our limits being pushed very much to the chest. I therefore would like to suggest there is more positivity in the press and we celebrate the 75 years this year as a success. Well, that's well done. Yeah, I think, yeah, well done writing that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Now, I've got a, uh, a little short here, if I can find it, that I want to read um, prior to Michael giving us something on the um, the garter, isn't it? The garter. The order there. of the garter. The order of the garter. Yeah. And following that, um, Kate's going to read um, who should be patron saint of England or... There is possibility that they're talking about making a new patron saint, uh, but um, she goes to sort of they're, they're, they're linked because um, Edward III uh, made uh, um, George the patron saint of England, um, and yeah, well, why did he do it? Of course, we had a perfectly good one at the time, anyway. Anyway, I've got this little story here. This one's um, a, it's a 19. 79 story, and I'm afraid it's from the county next door, Hereford. That's over the Morgan Hills, ha-ha, hee-hee. Okay. A whole shark might not be what you expect to see in a Herefordshire village, but that was just what visitors to the Red Line in Webley were greeted by as they entered the Mako shark arrived at the pub in August 1979. For several hours, the Hereford Times reported that the general summer smells of the famous black and white village gave way to odours more reminiscent of Billings' great fish market. And for once, fresh white salmon was taking second place on the menu. Putting the 24-stone shark on the menu was the brainchild of then-lady landlady Audrey uh, Mucklewick, uh, who made a feature of speciality dishes. Can you imagine a 24-stone shark? I mean, how long would it take to eat a 24-stone shark? Anyway, the shark... <laughs> <laughs> the shark... Uh, you know, for those of you that don't use stones anymore, that's about three people 
Wait, <laughs> wait. The shark was served up by Chef Rob Dew as shark fin soup, shark kebabs, braised shark steak, shark in a foil, and Pujarski Provincial. And I'm sure it was jolly nice too. Mike, mm. you have um, the Order of the Garter. The Order of the Garter. Uh, the Order of the Garter was the first and remains the most prestigious British order of chivalry. It was begun in or around 1348 by Edward III and initially included a monarch and 25 knights. Membership in the order was intended as a mark of royal favour and a reward for loyalty to the sovereign and for outstanding military service. The legendary beginnings of the order centre around the figure of Joan, Countess of Salisbury. The story goes that while the Countess, a notable beauty who is rumoured to be the King's mistress, danced at a court function, she chanced to lose a garter. King Edward gallantly, gallantly picked it up and tied it to his own leg. When he observed the sneakers or snickers of those around him, Edward remarked, Shame on he who thinks evil on this. This offhand remark became the motto of the order. Some modern scholars have suggested a garter may have originated with the leather straps used to fasten pieces of armour. Given the military focus of the order, that seems a more likely, if less romantic, possibility. Oh, I don't believe that, I must admit. You, it's, you got, like it's got to be the, the lady losing it, I'm sure it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to We'd like to believe that. I, I'd really. like to believe that. Yeah. There is nothing specifically to disapprove that story, but it seems equally likely that the order was a considered attempt by Edward to provide a focus for loyalty towards the monarch amongst his leading nobles. Edward was well aware of the grain cult of Saint-Denis in France and thought that providing his own realm with a national saint, and we'll hear more of that later, tied to the monarchy would only benefit his own position and solidify the ever precarious loyalty of his nobles. Here's something about the insignia of the order. Thus, at roughly the same time as the Order of the Garter was founded, Edward proclaimed St George as the patron saint of England and the order. Aside from a blue garter, worn fashionably below the left knee, the first insignia of the order was the George, a badge depicting St George slaying a dragon. St George's Chapel at Windsor Castle was named the spiritual home of the order. Every June, an official gathering of the order is held at Windsor Castle, and at that time any vacancies are filled with new members. The monarch and royal members of the order attend an official luncheon at the Waterloo Chamber, after which they walk in procession to a service at the chapel. At this moment, royal members of the order include King Charles, Prince Edward, Duke of Kent, Princess Anne, Prince Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Princess Alexandra, Prince Andrew, Prince Edward, the Duke of Edinburgh. And I'll end with this little fact. Prince William made history when he was appointed in 2008 as he became the 1,000th Knight of the Garter. Thank you. Mm, and um, Kate, you've got the about the patron saint. And um, mm. now I think there has been talk about uh, the possibility of 
changing the patron state of this country because George never actually uh, uh, visited this country as far as we know. But um, anyway, Kate will tell you more. Mm. Who should be patron saint of England? It is commonly accepted that St George is the patron saint of England. We celebrate St George's Day on April the 23rd when the Red Cross of St George flies proudly from the flagpole. But should we instead be raising the white dragon flag on November the 20th? It is surprising to learn that St George was not the first patron saint of England. That honour was originally held by St Edmund of Edmund the Martyr, King of East Anglia in the 9th century AD. Born on Christmas Day, 841 AD, Edmund succeeded to the throne of East Anglia in 856. A Christian from birth, he fought alongside King Alfred of Wessex against the pagan Viking and Norse invaders, the great heathen army, until 869-70, to 70, when his forces were defeated and Edmund was captured by the Vikings. He was ordered to renounce his faith and share power with the pagan Vikings, but he refused. According to the 10th century account of the saint's life by Abbo of Fleury, who quotes St Dunstan as his source, Edmund was then bound to a tree, shot through by arrows and beheaded. The date was the 20th of November. His decapitated head is said to have been reunited with its body with the help of a talking wolf who protected the head and then called out, Hick, hick, hick! or here, 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 to alert Edmund's followers. It is uncertain where he was killed. Some accounts state Bradford's, Bradford St Clair, near Bury St Edmunds, others Malden in Essex, or Honks in, Essex, in Suffolk. Sorry. What is known is that in 902 his remains were moved to Bedricksworth, modern Bury St Edmunds, where King Athelstan founded a religious community to care for his shrine, which became a place of national pilgrimage. King Canute built a stone abbey on the site in 1020 to house the shrine. For centuries, Edmund's resting place was patronised by the kings of England and the abbey became increasingly wealthy as the cult of St Edmund grew. Such was the influence of St Edmund that on St Edmund's Day in 1214, rebel English barons held a secret meeting here before going to confront King John with the Charter of Liberties, the forerunner to Magna Carta, which he signed a year later. This event is reflected in the motto of Bury St Edmund's, Shrine of a King, Cradle of the Law. St Edmund's influence began to fade when, during the Third Crusade in 1199, King Richard I visited the tomb of St George in Lydda on the eve of battle. The next day he won a great victory. Following his triumph, Richard adopted St George as his personal patron and protector of the army. Although the banner of St Edmund was still carried into the battle by the English army, by the time of Edward I it had been joined by the flag of St George. In 1348, Edward III founded a new order of chivalry, the Knights of the Garter. Edward made St George the patron of the order and also declared him patron saint of England. What became of Edmund? During the dissolution of the monasteries under Henry VIII, his remains were removed to France, where they remained till 1911. Today they are kept in the church in Arundel Castle.
in the chapel in Arundel Castle. But Sir Edmund was not forgotten. An attempt was made in 2006 to have St Edmund reinstated as patron saint of England. A petition was handed into Parliament, but it was rejected by the government. In 2013, another campaign was launched to reinstate St Edmund as patron saint. This was the St Edmund for England e-petition, backed by the Bury St Edmunds-based brewery Green King. This tongue-in-cheek yet serious campaign questioned whether St George, patron saint of 16 other countries, even ever visited England. It suggested he should be replaced by an Englishman, and who better than the Anglo-Saxon martyr King St Edmund? Thank you very much. Um, we're going to have a little break in a minute. You won't notice it because it won't notice it on the when you're listening. But oh, after three quarters of an hour and a quarter of an hour recordings. <laughs> anyway, um, there's a, a couple of little, some advice for um, young girls and ladies. Um, don't keep a man guessing too long. He's sure to find the answer somewhere else. I think that one's great. <laughs> Anything worth doing is worth doing slowly. And love thy neighbour. And if he happens to be tall, debonair and devastating, it will be that much easier. OK, we can have a break. <laughs> I thought we were, we'd had coffee, didn't we? We're going to have a break now. No, we're going to have a little break. Oh, we need be, a little break. Be quick then, because time's getting on. Cause of the Michael! You've got something for us. Yes, um, we've got quite a bit of poetry in, in, in today's magazine, and I think there are shades of, of Auden in this one. This is a modern poem, um, only from last year, from, from America, Brian Janey, and it's called Against Mastery. Give me no seat at the table. Let no trembling hands lay food on my plate. Let me lord over no one and nothing... Not the dog curled up in my bed, not the land, nor children who wander through my care. Let me learn from the babies, and be always laughing at my ignorance. Only humble discovery give me, and keep my eyes on the pattern of birds' wings breaking the blue overhead. Let me face the ones I harm with open palms, and let love be the method and measure of my worth. Keep my heart with my people, and the coal glowing beneath my feet. Let me run and run and run, and let the flame of my torch never go out. I am here with you to burn the house down. Keep me to this, cut me down, before you let me lose my way. That's rather nice. Rather. Yeah. Humbling. Mm. Humbling. Uh, no, Kate, you, you carry on. You've got something for us. Well, I've um, I've been reading, it's called TV Unforgettables, and I don't think there'll be many people who maybe aren't watchers of this programme now but were initially when it started. And uh, Ina Sharples in, in Coronation Street, uh, she certainly was quite a character and uh, her real name, Violet Carson, of course, um, and I've got a little bit about her and her life generally, which uh, is quite uh, you know interesting in the other things that she was interested in and did. Um, so this is her. She was born in 1898 and died uh, on Boxing Day in 1983. 
Azina Sharples, Coronation Street's hair-netted Harridan, Violet Carson, became the ITV's serial first big star. She appeared in its first episode in December 1960 and stayed with the programme for 20 years and more than 2,000 episodes. Born in a Coronation Street-style two-up-two-down terrace in the Ancoats district of Manchester at the end of the 19th century, Violet grew up with music, her mother being an amateur singer. Having played the piano from the age of two, Violet and her sister Nellie performed a singing act as children. As the Carson sisters, they sang at church functions and wedding receptions, earning two guineas a time. At the age of 15, Violet became a relief pianist at the Ambassador Cinema in Pendleton, Manchester, accompanying silent films for £2.05 shillings a week. At the age of 28, Violet married road contractor George Peplow in Manchester Cathedral, but tragedy struck two years later when he died. She never wed again, saying that she was a one-man woman. Instead, she immersed herself in work, which she had given up during her marriage. She became known on radio as the voice of Auntie Vi in Children's Hour and for six years she was the pianist in the Wilfred Pickles quiz show Have a Go, as well as being a presenter and interviewer on Women's Hour for five years and acting in many radio dramas. On stage she played the Duchess of York in Richard III and when Granada Television was having difficulty in finding an actress to play Ina Sharples in its new serial Coronation Street, creator Tony Warren remembered the fearsome Auntie Vi, with whom he had worked as a child actor on radio in Children's Hour. On his telling Violet about the part of Ina, she commented that she amounted to nothing more than a backstreet bitch. When Warren suggested that maybe she thought the role was too difficult, she retorted, Don't be ridiculous. I have lived with this woman all my life. There is one in every street in the north of England. The part was hers, although she had no inkling that it would last so long, having already turned down a role in the 50s BBC serial The Grove Family on the grounds that she did not want to act in a long-running programme. Ina Sharples, the God-fearing, outspoken battleaxe, was an immediate hit with viewers, often seen setting the world to rights. She was the matriarchal figure who epitomised the programme's tough, gritty northern character. As Coronation Street became internationally popular in the 60s, Violet herself became famous around the world and was one of the serial stars who flew all over the globe on promotional tours. By the end of the programme's first year, Ina Sharples was introduced at Madame Tussauds' Blackpool Waxworks. In 1965, Violet was awarded an OBE in the Queen's Birthday Honours and eight years later an honorary degree at Manchester University. Her only regret about this success was that that it did not allow her the time to do other work, especially acting in the classics on stage, which she so enjoyed. But she became a frequent guest on the popular religious programme Stars on Sunday, giving viewers a chance to hear her fine singing voice. Violet took time off from Coronation Street in 1973 after suffering a nervous breakdown and left through ill health seven years later. She died on Boxing Day in 83, aged 85, having suffered pernicious anaemia during her last years. The pleasure she had brought to millions was rewarded with a memorial service at Manchester Cathedral. 
She was last seen in the serial in February 1980, the character of Ina leaving for Lytham St Anne's to look after an elderly relative. Yeah, I remember her quite well. <coughs> when uh, when it first started, um, it was just a must for most people, wasn't it? And um, I was only young, so I had to, I had to watch it. <laughs> OK, I've got a, just a little story here, which I think is rather good. Um, this is about the police. A motorist was stopped by the police after found driving on the M62 with an African grey parrot on his shoulder. <laughs> yeah, because it's a, a parrot on his shoulder. Northwest Motorway Police posted about the incident on X, formerly known as Twitter. Not sure whether to term the driver as a pirate or not. <laughs> I don't know. That's quite... Yeah. Mm. Right, we're going to um, come to the quiz... And um, what we're going to do this time is not for Michael and Kate to whether they've got the answers or not, because it's often too quick for you to have a think about whether you've got the answer or not. So what I'm going to do is um, ask question one and then leave a very small gap for you to think and then go on to question two. And then I'm going to give you the answer to question one after giving Michael and Kate um, the, the chance to answer it if they know the answer. I'm sure you all understood that. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so here we go. Right, question one. Um, who, um, well, yeah, who discovered or named uh, the three laws of motion? Right. Question two, what is or what's the name of the fourth planet from the sun? Right, Michael and Kate, three laws of motion, who sort of... Oh, I, I, th I think this is the, the apple man, isn't it? It's, yes... Uh, I can't. I don't know his name. No, it's, it's not. No. Oh, it's not. I don't think it's him. No. Oh. Oh. Oh, right. <laughs> what? It is him, was it? I. I, I, I it's I, Thomas yes. Edison. Was it Thomas three? Edison? Yeah, Thomas Edison was the three laws of motion. And he okay. Wasn't, he wasn't the guy was that, that saw the apple drop. I don't think Thomas oh. Edison dis has ever discovered anything like that. Well, he, he's he's notorious. Really? It says, it says here Thomas Edison. Okay. It might be wrong, <laughs> but I think... Is it, it right? And there's Alex there. Oh. I'll Google it. <laughs> ah. <laughs> oh, okay. And, uh, right, the next one. Jet. Jet, the um, black ornamental um, the necklaces, etc., etc. Mm. From where does it come? Okay. And we go back to question two. Uh, the fourth planet from the sun is... Oh, I'm still working it out with my fingers here. Um, Jupiter? I might go in for Jupiter as well. It's Mars. Ah. Oh, there you go. Mercury, <laughs> Venus, Earth, Mars. Ah, OK. I thought, yeah, I thought, oh, well, shush. <laughs> <laughs> You're doubting all of them now. Yeah. Quick update. 
Yeah. It was Sir Isaac Newton's Three Laws of Motion. Thank you. Oh, there you go. Not I Thomas would Edison. have known that. Uh, Edison, Edison just, oh, yeah. Sorry, I got just it wrong. stole yeah, right. things. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it just shows you, doesn't it? I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, dear. Um, oh, okay. I hope I, you're not too confused, you listeners, please. <laughs> no, just so, I, no I, 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 oh, I, funny enough, I, I did a quiz last night um, over Zoom hmm. with friends, and that was one of the questions a friend of mine asked, and he said it was Thomas Edison. Oh, so I, yeah. I, I never really considered giving it a second thought. No. No. This one, I don't, this one, you've got, I've got to help you with this one uh, when okay. it's the time. Tyburn, where um, the punishments were carried out in in London, uh, it's uh, obviously not there anymore. But where is it in London? Where, where, what stands in its place? Okay, and I'll, I'll give a few clues with that if um, if Michael and Kate don't know what they are. Well, I, I used to be a Londoner, so I I know the answer to this one. You do, yeah. Well, yeah. I was a Londoner. Yeah, too, I do. Yeah. See, okay, just uh, you, Kate. I'm afraid. Right now. So, yeah. <laughs> so the the, the question jet, the mm. question jet, where's that from? Is it a fish? Oh, it's a it's a, a, ju- a sort of jewellery thing. It's a black yeah, jewellery. Yes, thing. but does that? No, where it's from, does, not fish. I thought oh. it was a, you know came from. <laughs> I've 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 been saying the word China right the way through this hour. Mm. Well, no, by sheer I, I, coincidence. I'll tell you, here's, here's the clue. Oh, go on. Where did Dracula ah. land? Oh, where did he land? Oh, yeah. Um... Whitstable? Was it Whitstable? Whitby. Whitby. Yeah, Whitby. Mm. Jet comes from Whitby. And I think it's the only place in the country where it's found. In in the rocks, wow. Okay. Uh, Right, we've done the. So we're going on to. Ah, this is. um, It's actually um, when we did this quiz last night, I asked this question. And. um, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you very much. Alex, fire Google up again. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, did you get it right? (laughs) Shush. Um, what are backers of stage plays called? Uh, don't answer that just yet. Right, we're going back to the Tyburn one now. Uh, Tyburn in London, the well-known place for execution was... Marble Arch. Marble Arch certainly was. Yep, yep, yep. Ah, and that's got military there. connections as well. Oh, it's on the so. corner of Hyde Park. Okay, now... Who was the Emperor of Rome that in, uh, was in charge of Rome that when the, the Roman army actually invaded England and stayed? Not Julius Caesar, who came, saw and buggered off. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, yeah, the, uh, the Emperor, yeah, I think it was 40-something um, AD. And uh, right, going on to the next one. Uh, oh no, we're going back to backers of stage plays. Backers of stage plays are called angels. They are called angels, in, exactly right. I, I've lost a penny or two on a stage play. Have you myself. really? Well, a, a, a bit like a racehorse when you yeah. just have a bit of a hoof. You know, yeah, I had yeah. a bit of a, a stage play. What did you play? Oh, it was some horrendous. Um, now, musicals are the worst thing to lose your money on. If you really want to lose your money, Musicals. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how long ago was that you did this? Oh, about, about 10 years ago. There was oh. a. Yeah. Was well, it a London play? Uh, Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Joined the, the festival. festival. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, went down with all hands. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, right, we're going. 
the capital of Canada. The capital of Canada. Okay. Right, we're going back to the Emperor of Rome that uh, was... His army successfully invaded the United Kingdom, not Julius Caesar, who only came for a brief period. I think he was here for about two weeks or two months or something. Didn't stay for very long. Gosh. Um, he, he was the emperor of Rome that um, was a bit of a... Um, he stuttered and he had a twitch. Ah, um, I, I'm watching this currently on the TV. They're rerunning it. Is it Claudius? Yes, it yes. is Claudius. I, I was Claudius. just going to say, is that yes, yes, Claudius? Yes, yes, yes. I loved yeah. I Claudius. He, he was um, emperor for about 12 years. Yes. Yes. No, catch it on the iPlayer. It mm. is superb Wonderful. television. Did you not watch I've been watching yeah. it as well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, right. Got the books. Which is uh, <laughs> the largest uh, island in the West Indies? Okay. The largest island in the West Indies. Going back to seven, the capital of Canada is... Oh, these are always trick questions. It's never the one you think it is. Oh, Kate, Kate's mouthing it. Oh. Yeah. Ottawa? Yeah, she was dead oh. correct, yeah. Well I was going to go outside bet Calgary or something. Yeah. A bit like Australia. Yes, yeah. your, your, your mind always goes to Sydney and it's I, not. Mm. I, I thought I'd catch people out with this last night. Oh. Uh, I did, in a way, because um, yeah. one the one guy got the first name, but not the second J.K. Rowling, what does J.K. stand for? <laughs> Don't say it yet. Going back to the largest island in the West Indies, which is... Oh, Jamaica? No, I thought it might have been that, but it's where the cigars come from. Oh, oh of course. Yeah, Cuba. Yes. Oh, gosh, Cuba. Uh, yes, right, we're going down to... Ah. Nowadays, we have to stand in a queue for hours waiting for our coffee. In the old days, we used to say, can I have a cup of coffee, please? Yes, pour it out of, uh, you know, something or other. Two minutes, about 50 pence. Nowadays, we ask for uh, 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 coffee, please. And uh, we wait for about two minutes or three minutes while they do it. As the queue gets longer and you can hear all the tuts coming from the... <laughs> anyway, what is a frothy, a frothy, frothy coffee called nowadays? A frothy Ooh. coffee. Are we to answer now? No, no, no. Mm -hmm. I've given seconds for the... <laughs> Give it a few um, moments to brew. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, J.K. Rowling, then, is... Uh, J.K. stands for... I think this is a trick, Barry. I yeah. think you're trying to trick us here because that's not her real name. Well, it might no. not be, but it's what's on the books. Yeah, yeah, so there isn't really a J.K. Mm. Maybe? Well, Maybe? I, I, I've, got, I've got the answer. Oh, OK, yeah. OK. I have no idea. No? No? Well, for all those... Uh, Julia? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's Joanna Kathleen. Oh, okay. is it? Yeah, rolling, yeah. Oh, it might be her real name. I, I, maybe mm. I've misremembered She that. goes under an alias because she writes oh, other yes, books. Yes, yes, the strike books. Yes, yeah. uh, she's, she's written oh. some other, other books. I've read a couple <coughs> of her books um, right. uh, under her alias, which I can't remember. Right. This, the, no. this is an 11th century battle. Ooh. What battle took place on Senlac Hill? Senlac Hill. And we're going back to the frothy coffee, frothy coffee question. What is frothy coffee nowadays called? Cappuccino. Cappuccino's yes. right. Yes, well done. 
And we go on to the next one. We've got 15 questions, by the way, so we're up to 12. Um, how old... I don't answer this, Kate, because I know you know this. I talked about this the other day. <laughs> how old was Mary Shelley when she wrote Frankenstein? Whoa, 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 whoa. And the next one following that... Oh, no, I've got to go back to Senlac Hill. Senlac Hill, what, what battle took place on Senlac Hill? No? No. no. It was the Battle of Hastings. Goodness oh. me. Yeah, it was called Senlac Hill. Yeah. I've been there, when I lived in London, I went there a couple of times on, you know, on the way. Of course, Battle's quite, Battle's, which is the town next to it. Yes, that. of course. It's quite a nice place. I used to like going there. Uh, right, now then, PPE. What does PPE actually stand for, other than money in the pockets of politicians? <coughs> um. And going back to Mary Shelley. How old was Mary Shelley when she wrote Frankenstein? I think she was a teenager. She was, yeah, well done. She was 19. Uh, no, she wasn't. 17. After you'd gone round it. 18. <laughs> oh. <laughs> she was 18. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite quite an interesting book mm. for an eighteen-year-old. Well, mind you, she was yeah, very, yeah. absolutely. Um, um, right, the, the penultimate question: What is the largest bird? And back to PPE. What does PPE stand for? I've got PP. If, if you excuse the phrase, I think. <laughs> You personal protection equipment. Yeah? Yeah, personal protection equipment. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm. We've lived with it for so long, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all... Oh, it's... Right, yeah. this is um, the last question. Oh, just... um, uh, what King of England um, was Mary, Queen of Scots' son? And we're going back to the largest bird. The largest bird is... Ooh, the American condor. Uh, can I take a guess? You can. Go on, Alex. Is he an ostrich? Yeah, he's an ostrich. Ooh. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Oh. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And, and ha having read a little bit about an ostrich, apparently an ostrich egg is big enough to make 12 omelettes for um, 12 people. 12 wow. omelettes for one egg. Yeah. That's a big egg. Mm. <laughs> mm. How did you all get on? I hope hang, you enjoyed hang, well, that. I've got one question. Oh, oh, got oh, one question. Sorry, we've got more questions. The answer, who was, um, who, who, who was the King of England that was the um, son of Mary, Queen of Scots? Well, I know from I, school that there are two answers to this because I had a Scottish teacher. Oh, yeah. So to him, it was James the Fifth, and to the rest of us, I think it was James the First. Yeah, James the yes, First. Yeah. James the First, I think. Yeah, that was fun. I hope you all enjoyed that. <laughs> If you didn't, we did. <laughs> mm. I wonder how many you all got right. It's not done, it's just for the fun. Mm -hmm. um, uh, who'd like to go next? Have you got any more of your own stuff? Um, I haven't, I'm afraid. You haven't? Let's go round in the right order. Um, Michael, here's a little story. Oh, do this one, because I think this one's um, quite an interesting one. Okay, sight unseen. Oh, okay, I quite like this. It's a it's a music question. Yeah, it's it's, it's something I remember, and it's it's quite. 
interesting really yeah no it reminded me of of it yeah well this is going um back to um arguably the best album ever made um by the beatles and the question is what is the truth of the beatles billy shears conspiracy theory um this is the claim that paul mccartney died in a car accident in 1966 and was secretly replaced by lookalike william billy Campbell Shears. It is suggested the other Beatles, with the help of MI5, hired Shears, who won a lookalike contest in 1965, to impersonate McCartney and continue the band's success. Well, you can see the national interest in, in that, can't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, okay. Uh, there is no record of this contest. Well, there wouldn't be anyway, would there? No. no. <laughs> um, or that this person ever existed. There are claims that the uh, Beatles left clues in their songs and the album covers hint at McCartney's death. Mm. McCartney has denied the rumours. Uh, well, no, was Billy denied Well, yes, yeah, so, or, or Billy <laughs> has denied these rumours many times. And even parodied it, uh, it with his 1993 live album, Paul is Live. The Beatles producer, George Martin, and their press officer, Tony Barrow, and biographer, Mark Lewinson, have also dismissed this as nonsense. Here are some of the alleged clues. The cover of Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band shows a funeral scene with a wax figure of McCartney holding a black instrument, a hand over his head, and a patch on his uniform that reads OPD. Officially pronounced dead. The lyrics of the day in the life describe a car crash and end with a high-pitched tone that only dogs can hear. Some hear the words, I buried Paul at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever, although Lennon later said he'd be saying cranberry sauce. <laughs> the car of the album Abbey Road Abbey shows Road, McCartney yeah. crossing the road barefoot mm. and out of step with the other Beatles, symbolising his death. When played backwards, the phrase Turn Me On Dead Man can be heard on the White Album's Revolution 9. And Paul is dead man, miss him, miss him, between I'm So Tired and Blackbird. The line, the walrus was Paul in Glass Onion, which refers to an animal that is a symbol of death in some cultures. All these clues are fabricated, misheard or taken out of context. This false story has been circulated for more than 50 years. It is an example of how people can find patterns and meanings in random or unrelated things and the way in which rumours can spread and persist despite a lack of evidence or logic. It's also a testament to the enduring popularity and influence of the Beatles and their music. Yeah, mm. there, there was a story I read um, yesterday, I think it was, um, that Paul McCartney lost the original uh, bass he used to use... Um, in Germany, and uh, you know, when when the Beatles mm. started up, it was a sort of violin-y shape, yes. one, Hofner. And um, if it's found, it, it's sort of reckoned to be worth ten million to in an mm. auction for you know, I it's imagine. incredible amount of money. And now you're in the sixties, I think they used to cost about fifty quid. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it was it was actually the it was a, one of the cheaper bases the. Yeah, one Paul four lads from Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, shame about them, really. Kate, you've got something, haven't you? I've got some funny phrases. Why do people say "Good night, sleep tight"? <laughs> this phrase originates from around the time of William Shakespeare. Obviously, this way was 
This was before the sprung mattresses of today came into being, and so mattresses were secured to the bed frame by ropes. You would pull the ropes tight to make the bed firmer to sleep on, and therefore more comfortable. The ropes would sometimes come loose during the night, so it was considered a good night's sleep if the bed stayed tight. How about that? Uh, and then, um, what does the term big cheese come from? Meaning someone who is well known and important in their field. Big cheese was developed after over several years, beginning in London in the early 19th century. However, the phrase had nothing to do with cheese, as it originally stemmed from the Persian or Hindi word chiz, meaning thing. Anglo-Indians would often call something the real chiz, combining English and their native language. However, when English people heard the unfamiliar word, they converted it into something they understood, even if the phrase no longer made any sense. This led to the development of the phrase big cheese in America in the early 20th century, where it was one of several big descriptions such as big shot and big banana, which all probably stem from the British phrase bigwig, and bigwig came from the practice of the privileged classes wearing large powdered wigs in the 18th century. So that's a, a couple of weird and wonderfuls. And now I've got... Um, <clears throat> A children's a children's story or a children uh, little story called The Facts of Life. And this is called I Know the Difference Between Girls and Boys. How many parents have been asked that tricky question, where do I come from? Children are naturally inquisitive and very persistent when they think they are being fobbed off or giving a lame excuse or told a fanciful story. And this is a, written by a man. When my son Dominic was six, he asked the dreadful story. Question, Daddy, where do I come from? I'll get your mother, he said. I said quickly. The three of us sat him down on the city, Dominic sandwiched between my wife and me, and we tried to explain to him slowly and honestly how he came into the world. We told him that Daddy loved Mummy and Mummy loved Daddy and how sometimes they had an extra close cuddle. I could hear myself sounding more and more like Joyce Grenfell. I told him about Mummy having an egg and Daddy having a sperm and other facts of life. So does that explain it, Dominic? I asked. He stared up at me with wide, unblinking eyes and sighed heavily. No, it doesn't, he said. I just wanted to know where I came from. Andrew comes from Sheffield. (laughs) (laughs) And then I was once approached by a small boy in an infant school who announced bluntly... I know how to make babies, you know. I smiled, nodded sagely, tried not to look at the least bit shocked and replied in a very casual voice, Really? I I do. I've just learned how to make babies. There was a pregnant pause. Do you know how to make babies then, he asked. I do, yes, I replied. There was another long pause. How do you make babies then, the boy asked, looking me straight in the eye. You go first, I told him. Well, he said... I knock the Y off and add I-E-S. Babies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. I think we got that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've, got, um, I've got one here to follow up. Um, have you ever seen boobies? Well, <laughs> a pair of rare boobies spotted in Cornwall. Seriously now. Two rare birds never before recorded in the United Kingdom 
at the same time and place have been spotted together on the Isles of Scilly, off Cornwall. Probably the right place for it, Scilly Isles. Yes. Wildlife lovers were delighted to see a red-footed booby native to the Galapagos Islands on top of Bishop Rock Lighthouse on Monday, with a brown booby also sighted at the bottom bottom steps. I'm sorry, I can't take this seriously. Both species, which are... uh, Related, oh, sorry, relatives of the more familiar gannet are non migratory and are commonly found in the tropical waters. They are rarely seen as far north as United Kingdom. This is only the second sighting of the species in the United Kingdom, the first of which was on the beach in Sussex in 2016. Julian Branscroft, the chief executive of the Isle of Scilly's Wildlife Trust, said, there's a chance that the tropical species like boobies are being forced to forage for food further afield. We may see more unusual species in our waters and may find that populations of tropical bird species are negatively impacting if climate trends continue. While thrilling, it may be in many respects, we need to work with conservation colleagues on a global level to assess the health of our seas and the wildlife that relies on them. So we don't want to see too many boobies on our coast. No. <laughs> no. no. It's quite a lovely bird. Eh? It's a lovely bird. It is nice, isn't it? Yeah. Beautiful. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, we, we actually get too many things in this country now. I believe we've got some very nasty hornets that have recently come over and they're, they're yes. not good at all and they eat bees apparently they, 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 mm. that's, uh, oh. they, they eat our bees and that's another thing I haven't seen I mean we did talk about this the other day have you seen many bees or not this year or flies no. No. none about is there no. I mean normally you get them in the kitchen flies and bees in the garden and, and wasps and things I think I've seen two wasps all year yeah it's, mm. it's been a strange summer yeah, it has, it you know, has, it's a bit yeah. worrying because, I mean, bees are so necessary for um, for everything. Um, yes. Michael, you've got something about Worcester. I do. Um, it's probably enough here to um, carry over for next time as well because it's a huge story which, well, you, with a bold claim. Yeah. Edit okay. it if you can. I, I will. It's, it's I not, will. It's not, I don't, well, you see how it goes. Okay. Uh, the bold claim is city with more history than any other in England. From simple beginnings 5,000 years ago, Worcester has become the thriving community we know today. And it goes on. Worcester can lay claim to having a longer, continuous history as an inhabited settlement than any other city in London. At least that's the firm view of archaeologists who have carried out exhaustive studies of its distant pasts. This makes it much older than, for example, those other famous cathedral cities, York, Canterbury and Lincoln, and even London. Much of the fascinating research work was carried out by eminent English archaeologist Philip Barker, who actually lives in Worcester. Evidence of the earliest habitation of the area around 5,000 years ago was revealed in astonishing detail by aerial photography in the late 1960s. Bird's eye views picked out the outlines of ditches and enclosures of Bronze Age settlements from about 3000 BC in fields alongside the Severn, from Holt and Grimley to the outskirts of Worcester. 
Mr. Barker says archaeological excavations in the gravel terraces each side of the river also yielded scatters of flints, burial urns and other prehistoric implements. But discoveries of even greater significance were made in digs on the Lich Street site opposite the cathedral in the 1960s. These unearthed evidence of a strongly fortified settlement of, long, of late Bronze Age or Iron Age date between 800 and 100 BC. Surveys showed that this settlement had originally extended southwards to extensive matches at Diglas and overlooked a long stretch of shallow river, capable then of being forded at all times except during floods. Sometime in the first century AD, the Romans invaded, as we heard earlier, <laughs> and replaced the Iron Age settlement at Worcester with a Roman town, which had greatly strengthened defences and had a large suburb to the north. When the Roman legions eventually left, Worcester became the home from about the 4th century to what Mr Barker describes as a sub-Roman Christian community who occupied the riverside area now occupied by the cathedral and surrounding buildings. Next to inhabitants of the area were a pagan tribe, the Hiki, a mix of Anglicans and Saxons who ruled a sub-kingdom from Worcester, covering most of Worcestershire and some of Gloucestershire. Worcester was the exclusive province of the Hickeys from sometime in the late 16, um, 600s to the 800s, a period during which the bishops of Worcester were also described in monastic records as the bishops of the Hickeys. The tribe eventually became absorbed into the general populace of Mercia and was not heard of again after the 1800s. Just after the Norman conquest of 1066, a castle was built in the city, which lasted nearly 500 years, a symbol of the warlike nature of the times, when pitched battles and British soil were frequent. Originally, it was unlikely to have been made of stone and would have resembled something more like a Wild West stockade. However, by 1640, it was much sturdier and had at least a stone keep. Later, records show... King John ordered the castle gate, then of wood, to be rebuilt and constructed of good and fair stone. Over the following centuries, the importance of the castle declined and the fabric decayed, and by 1613, what was left behind was used as a jail. It was finally pulled down in 1830, with the building of a big new prison in Salt Lane, which later became Castle Street. Perhaps this explains why the new jail was built so much to resemble a castle. For at least four centuries during the era of the castle, Worcester was a remarkably well-fortified city, surrounded by sturdy stone walls similar to those that can be seen today at Chester and York. At various strategic points around the city, the city walls were very substantial stone gateway entrances. Only one survives, the Edgar Tower. The walls were built 700 years ago in the 13th century and were still fully in place in the 17th century. Sir Hubert Lester, five times Mayor of Worcester, tells us in his 1930 book, Forgotten Worcester, that the wall of the city was of substantial thickness and not less than 50 feet high at any part and in some places higher and was bordered by a deep ditch. The only places where sections of the old Worcester fortifications can be seen today on the west side of the City Walls Road dual carriageway and alongside the south side of the Butts. Well, you read it all. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot, a lot of history in Worcester. Oh, I know. Oh, there is, there is, there is. There is. Definitely. Oh, yes. Um, 
Uh, this 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 um, this is sort of statistics. Uh, it's the the headline is difficult. Davids have the most to moan about in online reviews, and I'll, I'll just say it quickly. If your name is David, you might not like what you're about to read, and you might even want to complain. According to analysis of reviews of review websites, Trustpilot. People called David are the UK's moniest keyboard warriors. People with the name have left 20,020 one-star reviews on Trustpilot since its launch on, on, in 2007, more than anyone else. Paul and John, sounds like a Beatles, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> are the second and third online critics with 19,562 and 18,632 single-star reviews apiece. Names typically given to men dominate the top 15 with the likes of Mark, James, Steve, Michael and Andrew also featuring. Seventh Seventh place Sarah is the most prolific female name with Emma following behind as number 14 mm-hmm. so that's um, that. and there's another one mm-hmm. a little story here um, uh, residents in a Cornish town have had one of their Royal Mail post boxes closed because snails were eating the letters inside so there you are the mailbox in Marizon uh, uh, how did you say? Marizon oh Marizon I'm so sorry <laughs> uh, Kate spent a lot of time in Cornwall um, was sealed with tape al- alongside a sign which read "Temporary Closed Snails Eating Mail." <laughs> I've, I've heard of this snail mail. I didn't. So, uh, yeah, yeah. We certainly get That's it right. when it arrives. Who, 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 mm. uh, Michael just had that long story. Um, Kate, have you got anything to? I've only got a few minutes left. Sporting now. stories from one from seventy years ago and one from forty years ago. Uh, they're sporty things. On August the 19th, 1952, 70 years ago, the England cricket team, led by legendary batsman Len Hutton, defeated Australia to reclaim the Ashes for the first time since 1934. Each of the first four tests ended in a draw, and the decisive fifth test was held at the Oval, where on a nail-biting final day, England snatched victory by eight wickets. I should think some of the men listening... Uh, we'll know that uh, it will go be in their heads forever but uh, it's 70 years ago goodness me and 40 years ago on uh, August 1983 American sprinter Carl Lewis won both the 100 metre and long jump gold medals at the inaugural World Athletics Championship in Helsinki, Finland over his career Lewis won 9 Olympic and 8 World Championship gold medals he holds one of the sport's longest undefeated streaks with 65 consecutive victories in the long jump over 10 years. So two sporty stories from way, way back. I wonder how we'll go in the future. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what will be remembered? Um, but I, I asked a question in the quiz a little while ago about coffees and apparently um, the rest of them are black coffee is Americano White coffee, flat white. Frothy coffee, as we had, cappuccino. Milky coffee is latte. Latte. Latte, if you like. Uh, mixture coffee, espresso. 
milk top coffee, mocha, and uh, teas, not coffee, nor hot chocolate. So there you go. And what else we got? Just a quickie. We've got only a few minutes left. Um, 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 well, I don't know really what we got as a short one. I tell you what, there's a little one here. Um, Worcester Com- uh, Commandery was the home of the Duke of Hamilton, the commander of the King's forces, for a short while during the Battle of Worcester. He was taken there with a leg injury. Unfortunately for him, he died of his wounds. It is said that he was buried under the floorboards for some time before he was removed and entombed in Worcester Cathedral. Some years ago, a local man arrived early for a meeting in the solar part of the commandery. After some minutes, he left in terror, not able to explain what he had experienced and vowed never to go into the room again. To this day, it is not known what he saw. Other visitors uh, other visitors to the solar room have also felt a strange coldness and overpowering presence which remains unexplained. Some say it's the Duke of Hamilton in the throes of his agony. Ooh. That was a ghost story. Right. Yeah. Spooky. Yeah, we had uh, uh, 13 unlucky and all that sorts to start with. And we end with the ghost story. What fun. What fun. <laughs> I'd like to say goodbye to you all. And um, from Michael. Goodbye. And from Kate. Bye. And from myself. And we hope to bring you another magazine sometime in the future. I hope you enjoyed it. Bye now.